Yes, Lord. Lord, we thank you for just your presence with us. That we can just be so aware of your presence. Not only here in this auditorium, but for every person online, those that are joining us on radio later. Thank you, Father, for your presence. I think it's just so important that every individual here to knows, knows today that God loves you. His arms are open wide for you. He is doing a work in your life to bring you life and life in abundance. Can we just say thank you, Jesus? Just you thank the Lord right where you are. Just say thank you for your abundant life. For the more than I could even ask or think that you have secured for me and that you are working in me. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, team. We'll see you just now again. Thank you so much. What a wonderful morning together so far. Aren't you glad you came to church? Oh, praise the Lord. I really have been enjoying this series in the book of John. And um, I must say, I, I feel very privileged because with all the research and study and reading I've done, I can only share a portion of the learning that I'm doing with you on a Sunday morning. So I'm much more privileged and uh, I'm gaining and learning so much through this. Um, obviously, as mentioned already today, we are closing in on Easter. And uh, so for today's message, we're really going to start the journey towards the crucifixion. And so if you want to, you can please turn with me to John chapter 12. And uh, we're going to spend time in this passage of John chapter 12, which really begins around the Friday before the Friday that Jesus is going to be crucified. So we are in the last week. We're beginning to find Jesus now in the last week before the crucifixion happens. And uh, throughout this passage, there's actually a number of occasions, I think it's three occasions, where there's reference made to Jesus' emotional state, his mood. And if you read that, you're beginning to realize how the weight is settling upon him that there is an awareness of the closeness of the cross. And it's having an impact on him in his humanity and the, the expectation of with that which is going to be so hard. But if we go to John chapter 12 and we go to verse 1, we, we want to pick up and begin our journey through this passage. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Bethany was a town just outside of Jerusalem, just on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. Now if I say the word Mount of Olives, don't think Table Mountain, think like a hill here in Pretoria, okay? It's, it's, it's barely, it doesn't really deserve the name Mount. How many of you have been to the Mount of Olives in Israel and Jerusalem. I haven't, so, but Natasha has, and it's a, it's a mount, not a mountain. It's a little, little like copy kind of deal, you know? And um, just to the east of Jerusalem, today it's actually a suburb of Jerusalem, which was Bethany at the time, was this village. And in this village lived the very good friends of Jesus, Lazarus, whom we read of the story in the previous chapters that Jesus rose from the dead. Along with Lazarus was Mary and Martha, and we've read about them before as they were the ones that served on another occasion Jesus. And, um, you know, Martha got a bit upset because Mary wasn't helping her with the catering, and she was just sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus. You remember that occasion? And we also encountered them at the time when Jesus came to raise Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus, Jesus is probably on the Friday evening having the, the Shabbat dinner with them. They have arranged a, a dinner where they've invited some friends and uh, people of the area and the disciples of Jesus, and they're sharing this time together, this feast. And it's at this point that we depart into this week. And throughout the book of, of the chapter of John 12, he records for us certain events that happened in that week. Now, there's lots of events that happened in that week that John doesn't record. Remember, he's recording things for a specific reason. He's trying to tell us the story 
to convince us that Jesus really is the Messiah. So he handpicks events. And in John 12, there's four events that he includes for us. And I wanna call these four events four responses of faith that he records for us. To show us perhaps how to appropriately respond to Christ and how to not respond to Christ. So the four events, you can say there are two that are great examples of, for us about appropriate response to Jesus. And then there's two events that are examples of not such great responses to Jesus. And as I've said before to you, John loves to polarize things. He likes to put things into sort of two extremes to make it clear to understand. And he does that again in this chapter. He holds these four events and he separates them. And he holds two on the one hand and two on the other hand. And so these four events that unfold, these four responses of faith, I've simply entitled the response of Mary, the response of the crowd, the response of the Greeks, and the response of the secret believers. And so as you read this chapter, this gives you a bit of a structure for this chapter. And then there's some other things that the chapter also touches on. But let me talk to you about these four responses of faith. And for the sake of just telling the story a little bit more dramatically, I'm going to reverse the order around a little bit. If you read the chapter, it follows the chronology of the events. You'll first read about Mary, and then later you'll read about the crowd. I'm going to swap that around the other way. Is that okay? Can you handle that with me? So skip over the first verses of John chapter 12, and let's go to John chapter 12 verse 9. And we're going to pick up the story with this response of the crowd towards Jesus. This is what we commonly refer to this time of the year, particularly as Jesus' triumphal entry. This happened on the Sunday of that weekend, which was the weekend before the Friday that Jesus was going to be crucified. So this is actually a whole seven days before Jesus' resurrection, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Verse nine, meanwhile, uh, a large crowd of Jews, a large crowd of Jews, found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For an, on account of him, many of the Jews were going to, over to Jesus and believing in him. Now, something we've got to understand about the time is that it is commonly understood by historians that Jerusalem could house about 50,000 people at the time. The general population of Jerusalem was about 50,000 people. This time of the year, when it was Passover, and more people traveled to Jerusalem than any other festival or any time of the year, this was their most visited festival, the population of Jerusalem would swell to between 100 to 120,000 people. More than double the amount of people that would regularly live in that city was now descended upon that city. That would mean the whole city was under pressure. Infrastructure, everything was under pressure. Many people actually didn't live in Jerusalem. There was no housing for them. There was no space. They would live on the hills surrounding Jerusalem. And they would, they would camp. They would be good South Africans and they would go and braai and just camp, you know, with a generator and the whole deal. And they would go there and they would spend that week of the Passover together. This became a bit of a tense time, particularly for the leaders of the Jewish communities, the religious leaders. Because Jews were difficult people. In the sense that they were quite easily aroused towards rioting or becoming difficult and just, you know, revolting. And this was because they were living in a condition that they didn't like and didn't agree with. They were under Roman rulership. And because they were always under Roman rulership, they felt this weight, this, this like chafing like around their neck, around their life of the Romans. And so when you had a hundred and something thousand Jews together in Jerusalem at a festival with heightened religious significance and nationalistic significance, it became a hotbed for any form of revolt or riot to break out. And remember, the Jewish leaders were always accountable to their Roman superiors. And so if the Jewish revolt broke out, the Roman leaders, the proconsuls, the provincial leaders would come down hard with the military on the Jewish leaders and upon the population. So these Jewish leaders was always in a tense state around this time of the year, trying to make sure the crowd doesn't get too excited. 
that nobody comes in. This would become the, the great time for any person that wants to start a riot to come to Jerusalem and to get the crowd excited and to start a riot. So these Jewish leaders were in a tense mode. And in the midst of this now, Jesus comes. And Jesus is already a controversial figure. He's just the right kind of figure to get the crowd to start a revolt. And so they're watching him like a hawk. Now something even more troubling happens from the perspective of these religious leaders. Jesus has got Lazarus walking next to him. Now Lazarus, as you know, was dead and is now alive and became a visible representation of the power of Jesus walking alongside of him. Like the best advert of, hello, I'm Jesus. I've got supernatural power. Here's my friend Lazarus. He was dead. He stank. He is alive. Talk about what Debbie spoke about and our theme for today, alive in Christ. And so as these two were just in the area, the crowd's excitement started building. They started looking for Jesus and Lazarus and they started gathering around them filled with excitement. And the more excited they got, the more fearful the Jewish leaders got. So they came up with a brilliant plan of how they're going to quell the crowd's excitement. And this plan was, we're gonna kill Lazarus. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this is one of the dumbest plans that people have ever come up with. But it's typical of the devil. How do you think the guy who was dead is now been made alive by Jesus? The best way to deal with him is to kill him. Because what's Jesus going to do after you've killed him? He's just gonna say, Lazarus, sorry my friend, rise! And up comes Lazarus again. Probably not looking so good anymore. Couple of stab wounds or throw rocks thrown at him. And then they're like, okay, we're gonna kill him again. Then Jesus says, okay, thank you. You're just creating opportunities for me to show my power. Do you know that's what the devil does in your life all the time? When he gets threatened by God's working in your life, he comes up with a plan to undo what God did so that God can redo it again. So that God can be glorified. You cannot beat Jesus. You cannot beat the one who has the power of life and death in his hands and in his being. The one who spoke everything to existence. But I can understand these poor religious leaders. It's the only thing they can come up with. We're gonna kill Lazarus. Because the tension's building. And it builds to the point where now on the Sunday, after the Sabbath and this time that they've had together as friends, Jesus decides now time to go to the temple. And so he's going to cross over the Mount of Olives and go into Jerusalem. The crowd gets wind of this. I don't know if one of the disciples put something on Instagram or what they did, but the crowd got wind of this. And they start gathering in their thousands. In their thousands, they start lining because obviously to get over a hill like the Mount of Olives, there's only a few routes that you can follow. By the way, the Mount of Olives for 3,000 years now, is, is part of it is a mass graveyard. There's 150,000 graves on the Mount of Olives. And so there's only a few roads that you can walk through. So they found out Jesus' route, they pinned it somewhere, you know, WhatsApp Live or something they did, and now they're following Jesus. And the crowd starts lining the road that he's going to walk. And they start shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They start taking palm leaves. They gather them. There were lots of palm leaves around. They gather the palm leaves and they throw them on the, on the ground. Some throw their clothes on the ground so that Jesus can start come walking in. What they're doing is they're mimicking a triumphal entry of a, of a ruler, a king or a general that has conquered that is, is now being set up for power. They're mimicking that. They, they're preparing and setting that up. And so they're lining the streets. And what they're virtually saying to the Romans is, you think you're ruling us, but our king is coming. Our king is gonna take rulership. Our king is gonna come in his authority and he's gonna replace your authority and he's gonna supersede your authority because he's got more authority than you because he's the Messiah. He's our king. And they start saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they, and they quote scriptures. They quote scriptures as, as we've seen them 
You're quoted if we go to verse 12 to 15. The next day the crowd heard that he had come from the fest, for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Man, they're excited. You think it got noisy in this building today. We don't have a patch on them. These people got loud. They got loud. They got excited. They started waving. I mean, we've got flags, very nice and civil. They, you know, they weren't just waving flags, they were waving. And I don't know if you've had a palm leaf in your hand lately. They're a bit cumbersome. They tend to stick you. They're not the nicest things, but these people were. Man, they, I'm just scared this thing flies off. They were excited, they were waving and they were shouting. Now palm leaves at the time, had a symbolism to them also. The symbol of a palm leaf during that couple of years before that, decades before that, started becoming the symbol for national pride. They didn't have knight's flags like we have today, so they used things to display their national identity, and palm leaves became one of them. So when they were waving these palm leaves, they were doing something quite nationalistic also. It would be like if our flags here this morning had the South African flag on it, or Biltong, or something, of our national identity. And we would wave that around. We would actually be saying that this is about our nation. And so they were excited because their Messiah is coming, and he's coming to rescue them as a nation. The word Hosanna means save us now. It's an Aramaic word, save us now. So they were chanting, they were singing, save us now. And in their expectation, this was gonna be the moment where the Messiah was gonna ride in and he was gonna overthrow the Roman government and he was gonna destroy the power of the Romans. He was gonna chase out the Roman legions that were occupying that area. He was going to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And they were excited, man. The crowd was building. The crowd was thronging together. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now Jesus is starting to act in a way that doesn't quite fit their expectation by coming in on a donkey. What we have to understand here is the crowd got it right in some ways, but they got it wrong in some other ways. And that's why they became an example of an inappropriate response of faith. What they got right was this. They got it right that Jesus deserves worship. They got that right. That Jesus deserves extravagant worship. Jesus deserves all out worship. I mean, it doesn't have to be loud to be all out, but it has to be expressive. It has to be, the worship you give to Jesus is worship that it's seen. It's like, man, you are worship. Nobody must doubt you are worshiping Jesus. They got that right. Nobody could stand there and wondering, now what is going on here? They would know that these people are worshiping God. They got that right. They also got it right that they realized they needed a savior. That they couldn't help themselves. That they needed a Messiah. They needed God to come and rescue them. They got that right. So they were right on two scores. But what they got wrong put them in a very difficult place. What did they get wrong? The thing that they got wrong, the basic thing they got wrong, is they didn't know what they needed salvation from. You see, they thought they needed salvation from an oppressive, unjust, unholy Roman government. And therefore, they matched the savior they wanted to the thing they needed salvation from. What you think is your problem will define what you think your savior should be. They thought their problem was the Roman Empire. And therefore they fashioned a savior in the image of that problem that they had. 
And so when they were standing there shouting, Hosanna, singing, quoting the Psalms, Psalms 118, for instance, and singing that, they were forming in their minds, they had an image of this Messiah. And they were doing everything to shape the image of this Messiah in their minds. And that image was a Messiah that would be fierce, that would be strong, that would be powerful, that would be conquering, that would be of the nature of that his breath would destroy the Roman Empire. Now, Jesus fits the bill. He speaks and a dead man rises. He prays and thousands are fed. Surely this is the closest we've come. For a thousand years we've been praying and waiting for this Messiah. Surely this is the closest we've ever come to somebody that fits the description. It must be Jesus. And so they're holding up according to their need. They're building this image. They're constructing an image of Jesus. Can I say they are making them in their image, fashioned by their need. We need a Savior. But Jesus subtly undermines their expectation. Because he doesn't send the disciples out to say, go get me something to ride on, befitting my royal conquering like a general that would ride in on a tank into a city that they've just freed or conquered. Get me something that will show me my power. He says, go get me a young colt, a weak colt. A little horse or a little donkey. You know, there's another English word, but I will not say that word. Don't say it loud, Matthew. That animal. And Jesus climbs on that animal. And he starts riding towards Jerusalem. Now, if you were a stranger, if you were unfamiliar with this, what's going on. You weren't a Jew that have been building this up. Perhaps you saw this crowd, you know, you thought they're releasing a new iPhone, so you're joining the queue. You're like, what's happening? You know, just what's going on, people? And you find the crowd, and now you're standing there, and you're hearing from the people, the king's coming. The king that's going to conquer the Romans is coming. Expectation would build in your heart also. Wow, I wonder what this guy looks like. Does he have lightning bolts coming from his eyes? You know, Superman, that, wow, wow this, you know how strong the Roman Empire is and this guy's gonna conquer the Roman Empire? Wow, and you're standing there waiting, looking. Like, where's, where's this guy? And finally around the corner, here comes a guy on a donkey. And you're going, excuse me? This doesn't make no sense to me. Can everybody see this guy's on a donkey? You're all getting excited about a guy on a donkey? That makes no sense to me. Has he fooled all of you? Can you see the emperor has no clothes on? Or has he fooled all of you to believing that he's some powerful person, but he's not really, but just because he knows how to speak to you, you all think he is? Now we know that's not what's going on. The thing is, they couldn't see the donkey. They saw what they wanted to see. They saw what they need and their desire. Their diagnosis of their problem was building and imaging and shaping for them. They were worshiping a fantasy that day. And a fantasy that they've built up in their mind. That they couldn't understand what Jesus was doing. They for completely forgot what Zechariah 9 and verse 9 prophesied. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, this first part of the scripture was quoted by John. This is what they sang, but they conveniently left the second part of the scripture out. Re listen to this. Daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. That's the savior we want. Lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. That part they just left out. Because that doesn't fit their need. Because how can the savior that's going to conquer Jerusalem, the Roman Empire, ride on a donkey. That's not going to cut it. That's not the one we want. So they left that part out. You see, if you misdiagnose your problem, you misdiagnose your cure. Because they didn't know what their real need was, they was looking for something that would never help them. Jesus knew what the real need was. Their real 
enemy is not the Roman Empire. It's their sin. It's their own sinfulness, their own rebellion. So Jesus is positioning himself to come and conquer the real enemy, which is sin. The only way, and we'll talk more about this around Easter, the only way that problem can be solved is by God taking on the form of a human being, coming as a servant, allowing the sinners to inflict their punishment upon him, to destroy him, torture him, which would happen a week later. And that would be the thing that when he looks like he's failed, he's actually conquered. Jesus knew that. The crowd didn't know that. So they didn't want a savior on a donkey. They wanted a powerful savior. This Jesus couldn't even stop one Roman soldier from hitting him, shoving a crown of thorns on his head. Couldn't even stop a handful of soldiers from putting him on a cross. How can this guy be the savior? If he can't even stop a few Roman soldiers, how can he stop the whole Roman empire? He can't be the guy because they didn't know the problem, but Jesus does. And so this is a fantastic example for us of the right trappings of worship, but completely devoid of the truth. Isaiah 53, verse two to three, introduced into our thinking and into Jewish thinking what is commonly referred to today as the idea of the suffering servant. He has no stately form or majesty. This is how Isaiah describes the Messiah that is to come. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men. You see, this is the Messiah that Jesus is coming to be, but they were looking for the powerful Messiah and they're missing it. They're missing it all together. This, this thought challenges me. I don't know about you. Because I, I realize that sometimes I fashion Jesus according to my need. I shape a savior according to what I think I need salvation from. I, I fashion a Messiah that will fit the problem that I have. And then I, I, give, I can give great devotion and worship and sacrifice to that Messiah. I can, I can wave my flags. I can get really excited and, and, and I, can, I can become very emotional. And all of those things are good. Now, I grew up in a, in a context where we attended a very traditional church and where I was basically taught from little that when you go to church, you leave your emotions at the door, at the car actually. They don't, don't even make it out the car. After church, you pick them up in the car again. At church, no emotion. I'm so glad that in this church, I learned that my emotions have value to God. That I can cry, I can laugh, I can shout, I can whistle, I can get excited. So emotions are great. But you see, if I start pouring out my emotions on a fantasy, or my emotions becomes the thing that I need to be served by Jesus, I get in trouble because then it becomes emotionalism. Then my worship becomes pageantry because it's about some fantasy that I think I need. Now, I'll be honest with you. Like these people, I sometimes come to Jesus and my motives aren't in the right place. But you know, like Jesus did with them. He didn't stop them. He allowed them. But through his donkey symbolism, he was hoping to adjust their expectations, to adjust their worship, to bring truth to their worship. And that's what I need. Sometimes I come to Jesus and I'm all up about my need and what I need him to do and I want him just to operate in that way. And if he doesn't do what I want him to do, then he's not being a good savior. Then I'm upset with him and I feel disappointed and I feel... But if I'm open to the Spirit, He brings me along, doesn't He? And He reshapes me. He changes my expectation. He reveals to me who He really is. Because faith is a response to revelation. Worship is a response to revelation. 
It's when Christ is revealed and I begin to see him for who he really is that I can really worship. And worship, that's why Jesus came to that woman at the well in John 4 and he said to her, a time will come that you will neither worship in this place or on that mountain and it won't be about those things because those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. We must always make sure that our worship is based on truth so that it's not fantasy. So that we're not building up a Jesus that is this fantastic Jesus, but it's not a real Jesus. Because it's the Jesus that is shaped in the image that we need him to be. Instead of the Jesus that is the real Jesus according to the real problems and the real needs we have. You see, sometimes I need my Jesus to ride in in a Porsche because I have a financial challenge. I don't want to pray to a Jesus that says, I don't have a house to stay in. I don't even have a place to put my head. Jesus, will you provide for me? I want to pray to the Jesus that, you know, can multiply. Sometimes I need my Jesus to ride in on the, on the ticket of a political party so that he can change the political things that I need. Sometimes I, I need my Jesus to ride in in an ambulance and be my healer because that. And that's fine, that's all okay, that's all our human need. And Jesus says, come, bring them to me, ask them. But somewhere along the line, we have to allow the Spirit to show us who Jesus really is, more than what we need him to be. That's what it means to mature in our worship. And that's what we find in the second response of worship. And now we go back to verse three. In verse three, we read, Sorry. While they were now gathered at Lazarus's house that Friday evening, having their supper together, the Shabbat meal, at some point in the evening, it says this, when Mary took about a half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, we all know that have studied scripture that this goes down in history as an extravagant, remarkable expression of worship, a response of faith. Probably one of the gold standards of this response of faith. Why? Isn't this fascinating to you? That in and amidst all the controversy around Jesus, is he the Messiah, is he not the Messiah? If he's the Messiah, what kind of a Messiah is? And there were all these disagreements and arguments going on. Even his own disciples, if you read chapter 13, it's so wonderful the language John uses. It says every time, and the disciples not knowing. The guys, now let's not make this a men and women thing, but the guys in the group didn't have a clue. They did not know at all what was going on. They were still shaping Jesus according to their need. In the midst of all of this, quietly, without making a statement of trying to correct anybody, comes Mary, and she sees what's going on with Jesus. She picks up his emotional state. She picks up that he's a man getting ready to be crucified. Now, I don't think she had an exact idea, but she could see the weight on Jesus. So instead of approaching Jesus with her need, she comes to Jesus to minister to his need. And she comes and says, it makes no sense to me that the Messiah would have to go through what I see you are starting to feel you're going to go through. But that's what you're going through, and I'm going to make that the central issue. Now, Matthew and Mark record the story for us slightly different than John does in two differences. John tells us that she anointed the feet of Jesus. Matthew and Mark tells us she anointed the head of Jesus also. And John tells us this happened that Friday night. Matthew and, and Mark tells us it happens the following Wednesday night. Now, those are discrepancies within the records of Scripture that some interpret to mean those were two separate events. Some interpret them to mean they were the same event. There's just details there that we don't have enough information of. I think they were the same event. They're too, too similar if you read the different accounts. But those things doesn't really change the meaning and the value and the purpose of the story. So at some point in that evening, they were having their meal. 
Now, whether Mary lived in the house with Lazarus and Martha or whether her house was close by, and this is not what the scripture says, so this is just my imagination, but I can imagine her sitting there and she's reading the room better than anybody else. She's probably the only one reading the room. She's reading what Jesus is busy going through. She's seeing that he's heavy. He's not his jovial self. And, and something begins to bubble in her spirit. Prophetically, she's beginning to be stirred by the Holy Spirit. So she sits there and she says, should I do it or shouldn't I? And her mind goes to this bottle of perfume. And probably like many of you have felt when you feel the Lord gives you a word, should you go to the pastor and say it or shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I, shouldn't I? She, or, or like when you're at work and, and, you're, and the Lord says by the Spirit, go pray for your colleague, should I, shouldn't I? She was probably in that, like should I? It's gonna be awkward. But eventually she gets up and she goes probably to a secret place, a little cubby hole or under her bed or somewhere. She gets this very expensive item out. The scripture tells us this, this bottle was pure nard. Pure nard, nard came from the north of India. So just the fact that it came from so far would make it expensive. They would, they would bottle this in the north of India, sell it, and caravans of traders would bring it to the Middle Eastern world and, and tra- take it all over the world. She had pure nard. You would sometimes find more affordable, cheaper nard because it was mixed with other things and became less expensive. She had pure nard. Now, pure nard is this oily red substance that was used in the time as perfume for clothing for people, sometimes used for medicinal purposes, sometimes they used it as breath mints. They would, it, it, but it was an expensive thing. She had a bottle, a half a liter, this, they tell us. This bottle was worth one person's annual wage, salary. The average person of the time would earn, a laborer would earn a denarii a day, so without working Sabbaths, this would be the amount of 300 denarii, expensive. Why did she have it? Where did she get it? We don't know. But it was probably like a family heirloom. It was almost her savings account. Money that she had that if she ever got in trouble in a rainy day, she could sell this and, you know. She takes this expensive thing. I can imagine her dad saying, what? You did what? With the thing I gave you, she takes this. And remember now, Jesus is lying on his side, probably eating his meal. And quietly she comes. And she opens this bottle. The moment she opens it, everybody in the room knows there's nard in the room. You smell it. It's very strong. And she begins to pour it. I think she pours it on the head of Jesus. Have you ever been anointed by some clever person? that believes you need more anointing than just that little bit of oil on your forehead that you can dab up with a tissue? Have you ever had somebody do that? Take like oil and just pour it over your head? I've had that happen to me. It didn't work. But you, she pours this oily, strong-smelling substance on Jesus. I can imagine him jumping out of that moment and this oil starts running down his whole person. He is covered in this oil. That already, everybody in the room's going, what, hey, what's going on now? This is awkward. It's like, you know, and a whole argument arises, which I'll refer to just now. Then she does something even more awkward. By the time it's running on the feet of Jesus, she does something no proper Jewish woman does. She unties her hair in public. You see, Jewish women would tie their hair always in public. The only person that would see a married woman's hair untied is her husband. Now she, and don't make this about anything more than her worship of Jesus, she takes her hair, she unties it, and she sits at the feet of Jesus, and she uses her hair. I think there's something I haven't explored enough, but there's something in sharing the smell of Jesus. She's getting that same smell on her. She's wiping his feet with her hair. In John 13, verse 14, Jesus says, as he's kneeling down at the feet of his disciples and he's washing their feet, he says, now as I have done for you, you must do to others. She's a whole chapter ahead already. At the feet of Jesus. Can you see how prophetic she is? Because if your focus 
is not on your need first, but on who Jesus is. You tend to get it right in the Spirit. And she's getting it right. She's discerning that moment for what it is. And you know how the story goes, that by the time Jesus was crucified a whole week later, he was still smelling of this nard. He was the best smelling crucified man in history. And in amongst all the pain and all the suffering, every now and then he would catch a whiff of worship, of that which would be his eternal portion. He would smell it already because of her. Contrast her with the crowd. So absorbed, so excited, so deep into their own desires that they're misrepresenting, misidentifying Jesus. And then you have her. And it's not about volume. She happens to do this quietly. But in that moment, not trying to focus on anybody else, just pouring it out on Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want to get my worship right. Because I want it to be about Jesus. Like I said earlier, it's fine to come with your needs. To have your motives all out of whack. To come to a Jesus that you think is what you need. But I think we're all learning that to be at the feet of Jesus is a great place where you say, Lord, here I am. But I want to see the way you see things. I want to know what you say, what you experience. I want you to redefine. Worship guys, will you join me? I want you to redefine for me. Now in this moment, there is this little discussion I just want to touch on. I don't have enough time. But I just want to touch on this whole discussion about but she should have sold that 300 nard, uh, denarii words of, worth of nard and given it to the poor. And you know what Jesus' response is. He actually quotes from Deuteronomy. Uh, where's my quote? Now I've confused my... Deuteronomy 15, 11, he actually quotes when he says, you'll always have the poor among you. Now we must not read that as any slight to the poor. Jesus is not saying... Don't worry about the poor. He's just saying, listen guys, there's gonna be other opportunities for you to serve the poor and you need to do that. You need to rightfully minister to the poor. But this is a unique opportunity. Do you recognize that this could never in history happen again? That a woman can pour out the nod of Jesus just before he's crucified can never ever happen again. Even if it happened twice, it is a very unique occasion and Jesus says to them you've only got this small opportunity to minister to me not via ministering to the poor because every time we minister to the poor we're also ministering to Jesus but in this occasion he said this is direct ministry to me and I think in this I just want to say this this is the tension the community of faith always lives in should we you know there were years ago and uh, Mary and Auntie Winnie helped me with some just history there were years ago when it was felt that this auditorium needed a gallery. We didn't have a gallery. But the yard was at the man in of you. Can you know? 1990-something. I can, I, I can remember I was around. We're married, so no from me. See. Now we've got any on down. Sorry, we're married. This church needed a gallery. And it became a bit of a controversial event. Pastor Jack, you'll probably remember also. It became a controversial event where some in the congregation felt it wasn't the best expenditure of money. But Pastor Ed really felt that we needed the gallery. Those sitting in the gallery, aren't you glad there's a gallery? Otherwise, I don't know where you would be today. Sometimes a community, sometimes an individual wants to do something that is an extravagant ex just expression of their love for Jesus. And I don't think it's right for somebody else to judge them and say, oh, you should have rather done that with that money. If you look behind us here, there are these panels against the back wall, which is difficult for the cameras to pick up. Auntie Lucy Doran painted them 33 years ago. She took nine months to paint on 50 panels, a record of what was the church's vision statement at that time. God's kingdom, city, country, continent. And it's a representation of the flow from our city 
to our country, to the continent. And she actually chose members of the congregation in that time and she would paint those members' faces. So it actually became a thing that people would come to church and stand there to see who they could recognize. That to me represents a little bit of an extravagant worship. That today we look at it and we go, hmm. Sometimes God stirs in us to do something extravagant. To, to express by generosity. And to, in a sense, let the money fall on the floor. Because half that nod ended up going through the floor. And it was a temporal thing. Sometimes Jesus just requires that response from us. That's on the one hand. Sometimes Instead of building that building, we decide, no, we're going to rather invest in a ministry or do something to help the poor. And that's a tension we always manage. But I will never go and look at your life if you come and say, listen, I feel the Lord wants me to respond in this way. That's between you and the Lord. Now, as a leader, I will never, ever play on that. Try and elicit something like that from you. Because then it diminishes the worth of it. Because it's not about us. But do you understand what I'm saying? Our worship for Jesus. The more you see him like she did, the more extravagant you'll want to worship him. I wonder if you stand with me. The other two responses I don't have time to talk about is the Greeks. The Greeks that John refers to are Gentiles. Non-Jewish people that loved the Jewish religion and traditions and were impressed by it and wanted to be Jews but couldn't be Jews. So they would come to the festivals and watch the Jews, but they couldn't participate. These people come to Jesus and when they go to Philip and they say to Philip, will you ask Jesus if we can speak to him? Philip and Andrew come to Jesus. The moment they tell him the Greeks have come, Jesus says, now the hour has come. He says, now is the time of my crucifixion. It's like the clock is now completed. Why? Because John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Now Jesus could say, I'm no longer just the Messiah for the Jews. I'm the Messiah for the Gentiles also. And he turns to the cross. Their faith response is contrasted with the faith response of some of the leaders at the end of the chapter. That's, that, that scripture tells us many of the Jewish leaders started believing in Jesus. But because of fear of the people and not wanting to lose their social status, they would keep it secret. They wouldn't publicly come to Jesus. And John says, you cannot have a faith in Jesus that is superseded by some other value in your life. You cannot say, I worship Jesus, but I value people's opinion about me more. You have to be like the Greeks that broke through all cultural barriers, all social barriers, and said, we want the Messiah. Nothing else matters. I want, I know our time's finished, but I want to give an opportunity this morning for us to ask the Holy Spirit to show us Jesus. If I'm right, you probably have a situation in your right life now, as, as Debbie led us earlier, to speak life over. Right now, there are things that define your struggle, your joys. Can we ask the Holy Spirit today to show us Jesus that is more than our needs, more than what we need Him to be, so that we can worship Jesus in spirit and in truth, not worship a fantasy, not just be a church that is doing just worship things, but that our worship will have substance because it's, it's earthed in the truth of who Jesus is. I'm gonna pray a prayer and then I'm gonna ask them to lead us in a, a bit of a song. And in that song, I want you to respond. The words of the song will guide you to respond and say, I make room for you, Jesus, the real Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray for your presence right now. For those that are on, online or on the radio with us. Come Holy Spirit. Thank you Jesus that you gave us the Holy Spirit. That teaches us all things. That guides us in all truth. That takes us beyond our understanding and limitations. Our needs, our hopes and joys. Takes us further. That does the same with Mary that he did with Mary, enter us into a space where we begin to know things that we shouldn't know, but because we are 
seeing Jesus. And so we ask for that today as a community. We want to see Jesus. We want to make room for Jesus. The real Jesus. And if we begin with our needs and what we feel is important and right, that's okay. We're going to come. But we ask, Holy Spirit, lead us further. Holy Spirit, we just come humbly before you. And we thank you, Lord, that you take us as we are. You accept us with all of our foibles and faults, our misunderstandings, our motives that are impure, misaligned. You take us as we are. With our affections in the wrong places, our securities resting in things that are so feeble, yet you embrace us. You don't expect us to sort everything out before we come to you. We come as we are. But thank you, Holy Spirit, that you change us. You take us further. You lead us on. And that's all we ask, Holy Spirit. And all we want to make room for is for you to take us on. Not only here as a community and as a gathered church, but take us on. As you send us onto our front lines, as you send us We make room for you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. I pray the Lord will go with you by his Spirit. That you will have beautiful moments with the Lord Jesus by the Spirit's moving and inspiration that you will share the aroma of Jesus in your life. That you will know that he loves you deeply and that he has made room for you You have a home in him. May the Lord bless you. If you need prayer this morning, our team will be in the front ready to pray for you. It may be that today is the day where you have to say, Lord Jesus, I want to give my life to you. I want to get to know you. I want you to be my savior. I recognize that I am a sinner in need of salvation. And come forward and let somebody pray with you. Those of you that are online, on the screen you'll be just get to see how you can also connect with us please remember those that are interested to go to the connect lounge as you go out the doors on the left in the foyer hall and um, just may the lord bless you i look forward to obviously we still have next sunday and then after that is our easter time together that's going to be very special it's uh, just a blessing to be with you today may the lord bless you